I greet you in the high and holy name of Jesus Christ, crucified and risen. Here we are on the Sunday after Easter, and historically that has been called in the life of the church, Low Sunday, and I think I know why. You see, after Easter, with all the huge crowds, the concerts, um, with, with the uh, Easter sunrise, uh, instrumentalists, great, great choirs, after all that, many folks figure that on the following Sunday, even God is tired. <laughs> but it was not so with the early church. Those 120 saints had seen the risen Christ, and they were constantly in prayer and ready to tell the whole world that Jesus had risen. But our Lord told them to wait, wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. The early church was like a rocket sitting on the launch pad at Cape Canaveral, and the Holy Spirit would provide ignition and liftoff. And that would come on the day of Pentecost, and we're headed in that direction. Today we begin a six-part sermon series on Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We'll focus on one of the six chapters on each Sunday. And so rich is this letter in spiritual truth that it's like digging in a coal mine. St. Paul wrote this letter around the year 60 A.D., he was in prison in Rome, and the letter was sent to the church in the city of Ephesus where Paul had made his base of operations for over two years. Uh, Ephesus was the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire. It had a population of over 200,000, and it was located in what is today Turkey. Our scripture lesson for the morning is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. And if you are able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. For he, God, chose us in him, Christ, before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship, through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In Him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked 
in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Please be seated and let us pray. <clears throat> Take my lips and speak through them. Take our thoughts and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. Unless you speak, nothing of significance will be spoken. Give us your word, Lord Jesus. Amen. Do you remember what recess was like in elementary school? Whether that's thinking pretty far back for some of us, isn't it? <laughs> Whether you played baseball or dodgeball, the routine was usually the same, as I remember it. Uh, two kids were elected or appointed to be team captains, and then they chose up sides. Now, do you remember how good it felt if you were one of the first kids to be chosen? And yes, do you also remember, perhaps, how it felt if you were one of the last to be chosen? Sort of like the last rose of summer. Now, whether you were chosen by a person makes a big difference. And I'm wondering if in this age of equity, inclusion, and diversity, if the schools have prohibited choosing up sides at recess. I'll have to ask one of the teachers to tell me if that has been done. would not surprise me. But if school is designed to prepare kids for life, and in the real world you're going to be chosen sometimes and overlooked at other times, isn't school supposed to prepare us for life, real life? And it's good to remember that even if you're not chosen by anybody else, you're chosen by Almighty God. Consider a much more important choice that comes later in life. Now, you married men. I want you to recall when you fell in love with that special young lady and you had already chosen her in your heart as your bride, your partner for life. But, you didn't know exactly how she felt, but you needed to know. So, on one particular evening when the atmosphere was just right, you whispered those three magic words, I love you. And then you waited breathlessly. Because you knew she might say, Bill, you're a wonderful guy. And I admire you so much, but, and you knew what would come after that. But hallelujah, thank the Lord, she didn't say that. She whispered back, I love you too. And then not long after that, you ask her that all-important question. Will you marry me? 
And this time, she didn't hesitate very long. She said, yes. And your heart leaped with joy. Or to use the lyrics of the swinging medallions, that was a double shot of your baby's love. But that's the only time the swinging medallions have been mentioned at a sermon. <laughs> Our newest state senator, Mike Rickenbach of Florence, was blessed by two great choices that shaped his life. Uh, he shared his story in his first speech to the Senate. His birth mother was 14 years old when she found she was pregnant. And many of her family and friends urged her to have an abortion, and she refused to do so. Mike said, she chose my life. She chose my life. And even at the age of 14, she had enough maturity and good judgment and love to place Mike up for adoption, knowing that she was in no position to rear him uh, in a correct way, in a healthy way. And then Mike became rather emotional in his speech to the Senate because he said, uh, here in the audience today is the couple who adopted me. Now, Mike happens to be black, and that couple happens to be white. And he said, this couple adopted me and reared me in a loving, faith-filled home. Here is a man, now state senator, whose life was shaped dramatically by two important choices. The biggest choice in your life is not made by you or another person. The biggest choice is made by God. And the first great truth in our scripture for the morning is this. We are chosen by God. We are chosen by God. In Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 we read, He, God chose us in him, that is in Christ, before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. St. Paul, who wrote this letter to the Ephesians, he never thought of, of, of himself having chosen Christ. It was always Christ having chosen him. And indeed, Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you. St. Paul could never get over the fact that he of all persons should have been chosen by Christ. I mean, he was an enemy of Christianity. He, he spent years traveling around city to city, arresting Christians, throwing them in jail. So why in the world would God choose him? And indeed, he was on the way to Damascus to arrest Christians when he had a confrontation with Jesus. And Jesus knocked him to the ground and blinded him for three days. I call that the direct approach. <laughs> I sure am glad God was gent more gentle with me. St. Paul had a favorite way of describing what it means to be a Christian. He referred to it as being in Christ. And he uses that expression 73 times in his, letter, in his letters, in Christ. Just as you can graft the branch of one tree into another tree. When you become a Christian, you are grafted 
into Christ. He is the vine, we are the branches. And when we confess our sin and trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord, we are saved and changed. We read from St. Paul, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. Now it happened to me at the age of 12 in a little rural church in upstate South Carolina. Uh, I was seated on the back pew, uh, not intended to even listen very closely to what went on. But there was a young preacher from Walford College there. And the Holy Spirit empowered his words to hit my heart with incredible power. To the very depths of my heart. And I understood for the first time that God had chosen me, even me, and loved me so much that he sent his own son to the cross to pay the penalty for my sin. And that he wanted to adopt me as his own child. And I was so touched by the power of that truth that I got up from that back row and walked down front and knelt at that altar and received Christ as my Savior and Lord. And there at that altar, I felt so chosen and therefore so grateful, and it was wonderful. We are chosen, Paul wrote, to be holy and blameless. Now, holy in Greek is the word hagios, H-A-G-I-O-S, and it means to be separate or different from the ordinary. And oh, that causes me to wonder, does much of the, has much of the modern church lost its differentness from the culture? You know, often the church imitates the culture rather than transforms it. Answer this question honestly. Is the church in America changing the culture or is the culture changing the church? Christ does not call us out of the world. He calls us to be delightfully different in the middle of the culture. We are not to be, we are to be in the world but not of the world. And then in verse 5 we read, He predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. And the word predestined or predestination causes some debate between Methodists and some Presbyterians. Uh, some are called, so-called, five-point Calvinists. And they believe that even before we are born, God determines whether we will be saved or damned, whether we will go to heaven or hell. But the Bible does not say that. In St. Peter's second letter, he writes, God is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Ooh, I love those words. Anyone, everyone. And when John Wesley, our Methodist founder, declared, the world is my parish, he believed in unlimited atonement that Christ died for everyone. And that's what we're privileged to declare. Now, we Methodists share with Presbyterians this belief. None of us would come to Christ if he did not make the first move in our direction. Jesus said it this way, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Draws him. God calls all people 
He loves all. But we have the freedom to respond yes or no. When God made us in His image, He gave us freedom. We are not robots. We are not run by artificial intelligence. We have the freedom to respond. Someone has said, God votes for us, the devil votes against us, and we cast the deciding vote. And if a person is determined to go to hell, he can. But he'll have to crawl over the cross to get there. And many do. Many do. Some reject the gospel, and others just postpone a decision until it's too late. But God wants every person to be saved. As I love to say, and you've heard me say before, nobody is good enough to get to heaven without a Savior, and nobody is so bad as to be beyond the reach of the Savior's love. All right, here's the second great truth I find in our Scripture today. We have been redeemed by Christ. We have been redeemed by Christ. Listen again to Paul's word. In Him, Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Now consider that word redemption. In the first century Roman culture, that word was often used to describe the ransom paid to set a slave free. And in the Roman Empire, there were more slaves than free people. So often somebody paid a ransom to free up this person. Paul is telling us that the ransom necessary to free us sinners from sin and death was the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Now, I love to talk about the cross. Nobody can understand fully the mystery of the cross. It's too big. It's a, it's a divine thought that goes beyond my pay grade. It goes beyond the pay grade of the Pope. Nobody can fully encompass the mystery. Oh, but I can take you part way. And I do love to take you part way. Let me take you part way. It begins with the fact that we sinners are separated from a holy God by our sin. It was in our DNA all the way from Adam, but we have, we have activated and affirmed it by thought, word, and deed. We are sinners. Now, God could not just wave a magic wand and banish our sin. He's all-powerful, but he couldn't do that. Why? Because he is just and holy. He cannot compromise his justice and his holiness. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. We sinners are under a death sentence. And for us to be saved, somebody's got to pay for our sin. In the book of Hebrews, we read, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And during those centuries before Christ, animals were sacrificed as atonement for sin. But when we come to the New Testament, we read this. It is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. So why was the sacrifice of animals allowed in the Old Testament? In order to prepare us to understand the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. No one but God himself, in the form of Jesus, could be a sufficient sacrifice for the sins of all believers of all generations. Because only a sinless person can atone for the sin of others, for sinners. And nobody but Jesus was without sin. 
And nobody but Jesus was good enough and great enough and loving enough to take on the sins of all believers, including you and me, in order to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, that's the truth of the cross. And that's as far as I can take you. But, oh, that's a long way there. There was a cross in the heart of God long before a cross was erected on Calvary's hill. Because long before God created the first human being, God knew that if he created us in his image, there would come a time when he would have to send his son to die on a cross to save us. And he did it anyway. So great was his love. So determined was he to have billions of us spend eternity with him that in his great heart, it was important enough for his own son to die on a cross for us. So the cross was predestined by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. That brings us to the third great truth in our text for today. We have been chosen for a purpose. We have been chosen for a purpose. And what a huge purpose it is. Paul expressed it this way, and he, God, made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. The truth had been kept secret for many centuries, but now is revealed. Well, why was the plan kept secret? Because God's plan could not be understood and activated until after the crucifixion and resurrection of our Lord. And the plan of God is this. He wants to bring about a kingdom that will overcome all the divisions that haunt our world. You know those divisions, communist versus capitalist, liberal versus conservative, white versus black, the affluent versus the poor, the educated versus the ignorant. The elite versus the deplorables. God intends for the whole world to become one great family under the Lordship of Christ. But I can almost feel you thinking, Oh, Brother Bill, if that's God's plan, it doesn't seem to be working out. I mean, when I look around, I don't see that we're progressing in the kingdom of God. Uh, if anything, the momentum is on the other side. A recent poll by the Wall Street Journal reveals that 25 years ago, 62% of Americans said that religion was very important. But last year, 2022, only 39% of Americans said the same thing. Just think, that's a drop from almost two-thirds to just above one-third. And during the same time period, tolerance for others dropped by the same percentage. Yes, if you look around at the culture, it seems that Satan is winning. Several weeks ago, television news told us about a Christian woman in Oregon who, want, who wanted to adopt two nine-year-old children who were in foster homes. But the state of Oregon would not let her adopt because... She believes the truth of the Bible that God gives gender to us at birth and God does not make mistakes. She believes the Bible. 
And therefore, the state of Oregon says she's not fit to adopt those children. And the real losers are those two nine-year-olds. As you know, even our schools have become dangerous places. And several weeks ago, many of us cringed and, yes, even wept with those distraught parents in Nashville who had to face the unimaginable. And if a mentally ill killer can murder nine-year-olds in a school, no place in our society is safe. Thankfully, God's plan does not depend on public opinion polls or trends in the culture. God's plan is to gather all things in earth and heaven together under one head, that is Christ. And it's God's plan for his kingdom that there won't be any more war or nuclear weapons or poverty or racism or disease or hatred. God's kingdom will be just as we pray every Sunday. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus talked about the kingdom of God more than any other single subject. Well, what does that kingdom look like? Uh, Philip Yancey, the editor of Christianity Today, says that the church must create an alternate society, an alternate society that will demonstrate what the world is not, to be countercultural. It will be a society that welcomes people of all races and classes, a society that is characterized by love rather than polarization, a society that cares most for the least, the lost, and the lonely, a society that stands for justice and righteousness in a world of selfishness and decadence, a society that lifts up the Bible as God's perfect standard for faith and practice. Now, the Bible itself is not optimistic about the future, the immediate future. The Bible says things are going to get worse before they get better. Jesus said the same thing. Jesus said, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. He's talking there about the churches. Think about that. The love of most will grow cold, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. Between now and the time Jesus returns, and it could be tonight, we Christians must be warriors for the kingdom of God. What does that mean? Let me try to spell it out in the form of three mandates that we Christians should embrace and use to shape our lifestyle. First, we must be bold, bold in promoting the truth and the standards of the Holy Bible. And that means that we must refuse to be silenced or intimidated or canceled. Secondly, we must always express agape love, which means seeking the best for all people, even those who disagree with us, even those who hate us. doesn't have anything to do with their attitude toward us. We are obligated under Christ to express agape love, which is seeking the genuine best for every person. And thirdly, we must seize every opportunity to share a word about Jesus Christ knowing that the power of that name is awesome. When that name is spoken reverently, it has power we never dreamed about. Now that's our calling. And even the Bible 
warns us, of course, that even though things are going to get worse, we must not lose hope. Because we know at the right moment, Jesus Christ is going to return and claim victory for the kingdom of God. And the whole world is going to see him coming in the clouds. And the faithful will rejoice and the unbelievers will face judgment. Occasionally, we get a foretaste, a little bit of a preview of what the kingdom of God will be like. And such a preview was seen in 1989 in the nation of Czechoslovakia. Up until November of that year, the communist government had the church under strict restrictions. They were not allowed to evangelize. Christians were were afraid even to talk in public about their faith because of the government. They were not allowed to put any signs in front of the churches. They were not even allowed to ring their own bells. But within the churches of Czechoslovakia, a thirst and hunger for freedom was growing. And in November 1989, those forces of freedom made a move. Word was sent out across the nation that precisely at noon on November 17, all people were to leave their homes and businesses and pour out into the streets in a mass protest. And precisely at noon on November 17, all the bells in all the churches in the country were supposed to ring. And it happened. At precisely noon, November 17, it happened. And the result was electric. People would never forget the experience that day. And even the communists knew that their reign of terror was over. Without a shot being fired, the communist government fell. And the pastor of the largest church in Prague put a huge sign out in front of his church had just four words on it in huge print. And the sign said, the lamb has won. The lamb has won. Not the tiger, not the lion, not the bear. The lion has won. And one day, the lamb of God, the risen Christ, will return to declare the full victory for the kingdom of God. It'll be the greatest revolution in human history. The first will be last and the last will be first and every knee shall bow and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father now I want to ask you is that good news amen in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit amen let us pray Holy Father When the forces of evil seem to be dominating your world, don't let us get discouraged. Remind us that Jesus has already overcome the world. When the kingdom of God seems like a long shot in this secular culture, remind us that with you all things are possible. Grant us wisdom. Grant us courage for the living of these days. Amen.